Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. We've all been scanning the skies for a sign from above that some kind of post-pandemic return to normal is approaching. I'm not sure what normal will look like. This past week's Met Gala or Met Ball represented an apotheosis of sorts, a signal that New York society no longer controls the currency in the art world capital. That currency is just fame. The fame can be feature length or the length of a single TikTok performance, but the fact is that the denizens of Park Avenue and Tribeca, along with those in every other domicile in the United States, are just another set of eyeballs driving downloads. And the quaint notion that an art museum is a place for learning and the protection of heritage is in doubt. It feels a bit like the Roaring Twenties must have, with the eruption of new money challenging the social order then. Funnily enough, the new money in the 1920s is the old money today. And all we can be sure of is that our expectations of who's in charge of our cultural institutions are likely to be wrong. Now on to this week's guest. In the last 18 months, personally, I'm experiencing new ideas or ideas in new ways. I'm sitting back and stunned, questioning the excellent education I was afforded and wondering, well, why wasn't I taught that? Why didn't I know that until recently? Issues, big issues in U.S. history. That was Dr. Dorothy Kaczynski, the Vredenberg Director and CEO of the Phillips Collection since April 2008. Previously, Dr. Kaczynski was Senior Curator of Painting and Sculpture at the Dallas Museum of Art. She was also the museum's Barbara Thomas Lemon Curator of European Art. Over the course of some 40 years in museum work, Dorothy has earned a reputation internationally as an accomplished curator and scholar of 19th and 20th century art. For over 12 years, she was based in Basel, Switzerland, where she was a curator, scholar, and university instructor, including curator and administrator of the Douglas Cooper Collection. In August 2013, she was appointed by President Barack Obama to the National Council on the Humanities. She currently serves on the board of the Sherman Fairchild Foundation and the Morrison Gwendolyn Kafritz Foundation. She received a BA from Yale University and an MA and PhD from the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University. Dorothy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm uh, glad to have this opportunity to talk with you. Well, no more than me. And particularly because you recently announced that you're going to be stepping down from the Phillips towards the end of 2022. And That's right. it's a bit of a shock to the system. We have been watching you with pleasure, all that you've done. And there's a brief recap I could give. You've more than doubled the collection during your nearly 15-year tenure. You grew the endowment fivefold to almost $100 million. You made strides in diversifying the staff years before it became the norm in the museum field. And of course, you've staged major and important exhibitions. Also, you built these remarkable partnerships with regional educational institutions. When you leave a directorship, which you haven't done that often, I will say, (laughs) what's going to be the most enduring in your mind in the institution? Which of those changes do you think will leave the most important legacy? Hmm. You know, that's like um, choosing between your children. Though I think that there's a light motif I can point to. So I guess I would say our efforts around equity and inclusion. Um, and maybe to claim that as my most important legacy allows me to have my cake and eat it too. <laughs> because it's not just about DEAI, you know, it's not a human resources issue. It's really the way in which an institution 
approaches its mission, its communities, its philosophy, or even moral compass about its purpose, including how it frames its exhibitions and collections. Mm -hmm. So for me to talk about diversity and inclusion, I'm very proud that we were, we think, the first U.S. art museum to have a full-time chief diversity officer, which is fantastic. And we have a change agent, a thought leader in Makiba Clay. But that alone would be insufficient. And in the end, I'm really, really proud of our recent exhibits, Rifts and Relations, African-American Art in the European Tradition, Opening in a few weeks, we mm -hmm. have Alma Thomas, David Driscoll, and Sanford Biggers. But lasting legacy, the collection will show how we were thinking, what we were concerned about in the works by Simone Lee, MacArthur Binion, Benny Andrews, M.A. Mapane, or the G's Bend quilts, <laughs> thanks to a certain distinguished <laughs> colleague and a very important foundation. Those are all really, really important works, and embracing them within the collection exemplifies this new direction or enhanced direction, mm -hmm. thinking about the fullness of artistic expression. We go back a ways in the museum world, and in each of our cases, something like four decades. But... Mm. Have you ever witnessed a change like this? In other words, for decades, we plodded along doing shows, buying art, opening speeches, dinners, clinking glasses. And it felt to me, when I left the Dallas Museum, a bit rote. Mm. This change that you're describing is not about the museum as a isolate entity. It is about its role in society. That's a change, right? It is, and a profound one. I think I'm accurately paraphrasing Smithsonian Secretary Lonnie Bunch said something, you know, a museum is not a community center, but it had better be at the center of the community. It is different. In the last 18 months, for me personally, I feel that I'm experiencing, and so not just professionally, but personally, I'm experiencing new ideas or ideas in new ways. I'm sitting back and stunned, questioning the excellent education I was afforded and wondering, well, why wasn't I taught that? Why didn't I know that until recently? Issues, big issues in U.S. history. Either I'm a slow learner <laughs> or there's a kind of a laser-like focus. The lens is calibrated more carefully. But I don't, I think I was too young and new in the field to realize it. But when I was just starting out and I had my first, my baby job at the Guggenheim Museum in the late seventies, I didn't realize fully at the time that things were a changing, that museums were suddenly having education offices. That was a growing part of the industry when it hadn't been or even development offices. All of those functions are more externally focused, but it's a there's a qualitative difference now. Perhaps it reflects the urgency of 
ideas, issues, fractures within our society. But Dorothy, there are still plenty of museums and museum directors who are focused on building bigger buildings, Mm. staging bigger shows, attracting big gifts. Are you saying that that world is one which isn't sufficient any longer? I mean, maybe it's necessary here and there, but it's no longer Mm. sufficient. Yeah, that's a, that's a hard, that's a challenging question. Um, that's what art scoping is all about, Dorothy. Yeah, it's, I, I think that a challenging question. Well, someday in the future, and I'm very thankful it's not going to be under my watch, the Phillips collection will need a additional space. I'm sure of it. So I'm, in a sense, I'm deflecting your challenging question and bringing it back to just what's right in front of me. But the idea of finding additional space or an expansion, frankly, excites me much less than the kind of idea-driven, people-driven, community-driven work we've been focused right. on. Well, exactly. Just, it's just so much more compelling for me, and maybe that's just me. No, I don't think it's just you. And I wanted to ask you about a larger question around the field, because leaving the Phillips aside, a lot of museums are witnessing talented leaders like you step away from the director's office. So I'm curious what you think are the attributes, the top attributes, that art museum directors coming into roles like yours need to have. There are probably three words that are top of mind for me. It's elasticity, energy, and curiosity. So I'm not offering a business school script about management, and I'm not offering the typical credentials about years in the field or Mm -hmm. degrees, but I think that the challenges to someone who has the job of being director of a museum are huge now or bigger, I believe. But again, we always think our times are more interesting or fraught or different. But, you know, within the past 18 months, I think we all were confronted with challenges we never dreamt about. You know, I think so few of our colleagues were adequately prepared to think about personnel issues on the scale of unions, Mm -hmm. demands. I mean, I think there's a generational shift that's really, really important. But interrupting you, Dorothy, mm -hmm. isn't there also a feature of this, which is, to your point about staff making themselves heard, had Mm -hmm. a profound impact, unionization happening across Mm -hmm. the Northeast, certainly in the last several months. Mm -hmm. But part of that is the director's office no longer being purely beholden to the board above it. Because in the past, that was the role. The director managed the staff, but they responded to the board. In this world, I'm seeing directors having to respond both up and down. Yes, that's absolutely true. So when I said elasticity, curiosity, energy, you know, managing up and down, being engaged and open, member of the community. So, you know, it's inside, outside, it's up and down. That's just a huge, huge challenge on any individual's capacity. That tension to serve at the pleasure of the board, you know, be responsive to the trustee leadership's ideas, to craft with them a vision. You're right. It has to be definitely crafting a vision and being equally responsive to the talented individuals who 
bring themselves daily with such passion and skill and creative force to their work. They're seeing in the achievement of what we formerly defined as success, a big fancy new building, mm -hmm. a major exhibition that had a reclame in the press and mm -hmm. crowds coming in. The staff isn't seeing that as the demarcation of success, and they're looking for different forms of a proof of value. But the director is now in this sandwich where the board hasn't let go of those things. And the mm. staff has. So how do you reconcile that as a new director walking into any museum? Mm. Well, I guess I've been very lucky with the cultural environment at the Phillips. And so going back to the key attributes, mm -hmm. I, I think listening carefully is really important. Carefully, authentically, and I'm paraphrasing an artist, fearlessly. In other words, authentic transparency and presence is really critical. That doesn't mean always agreeing <laughs> mm -hmm. with, with either trustees or staff. Yeah, that, that sense of hierarchical decision-making mm -hmm. of exclusive centers of power, you know, staff is very allergic to that, right. that they want to be at the table, quote unquote. They want to know what's going on. I think that's, that's human nature. And also there's a key issue in the middle of all of this, and it's generational change. Yeah. And it's driven also by our digital culture, the immediacy of response, the immediacy of information, accurate or otherwise, the impatience with tradition or process. All of that is very real and maybe even steers us back to the beginning of, you know, your questions to me today of, you know, that I'm going to step down from the directorship at the end of next year. I think that it is a good thing to consciously, deliberately, and elegantly make way for the next generation. I think that's really good. Yeah, it's good. I guess the other topic, though, around this in terms of credentials is that you and I are old enough to remember when knowing a little bit about art history seemed useful for a museum director. Mm -hmm. Now, suddenly everybody can have access to information and expertise, so-called expertise is devalued in terms of the implicit expertise of an incumbent. Is it still true that a museum director needs to know about art history? <laughs> I think yes. I remember when I was getting my doctorate, one professor described it as, you know, your license to drive. So it's like very first step, <laughs> foundational credential. But that was coming from a person in the academy. I do think that working in a museum, which is a not-for-profit business that has a public dimension and a responsibility very frequently to public funds, there had better be, besides a knowledge of art, a curiosity about all the new digital phenomena. I don't think you can move forward in the field or in your work if you're clueless and lacking curiosity. <laughs> That's or, a low bar. That's a yeah, low bar. Dismissive. <laughs> so, so you have to have that. But also, I was having a conversation just yesterday with somebody who talked about how anguishing it is if a museum displays works of art that have everything to do with issues of equity, race, and social injustice. 
but then cannot find the roadway in their own practice to adequately address those issues, disparities of pay or inclusion. The wholeness of thinking has to be really central to successful leadership in the museum sphere. Dorothy, you said something which we all say, museums are nonprofit businesses. Well, they're really charities. I mean, that's where the money comes from. It Mm. comes from charitable giving. It doesn't come from business activity. It doesn't come from earned income, with very few exceptions. you're, You're absolutely right. And in the same conversation yesterday with a colleague, I remember myself pointing to the peculiarity of the lack of public funding support in this country, you know, as opposed to most other countries in the Western world where there's a ministry of culture, there's adequate support of cultural institutions as part of your infrastructure as a society, as much as roads and bridges. That's how I sort of see that. And of course, that doesn't exist here. And it does set up a very peculiar backdoor incentivization of the wealthy to give, and then society rewards them with a charitable deduction. Our government creaks along with an inability to make decisions, even in the most self-evident areas. So I think this is way down the road, but it does instill you know, a lack of honesty or even fear, I would think, within the minds and decision-making of a museum director. Clearly. And we've seen what's happened in Britain now with a new minister of culture who has no demonstrable past in the field. So you see how politics plays into the ministerial functions abroad, which you and I know a bit from working overseas. I wanted to turn to your tenure as a curator. Before you became a director, you started as a paintings curator in Dallas at the Dallas Museum of Art. In 95, how do you think the work of a paintings curator, leaving aside the administrator, has changed since when you started? Well, and I was working with um, paintings, works on paper, long prior to that when I was in in Europe or starting at the Guggenheim. Yeah, I'm pausing just to gather my thoughts about that. I'm, I also smile because I had so much fun <laughs> in Dallas. We had an adequate purse at that time from a couple of major foundations so that when I visit that museum, it gives me such pleasure to see the impact that we all could have on what the European collections are. Well, and what they became even in your aftermath from Mrs. McDermott's incredible gift, which you were part of setting up. You were part of the cultivation of that type of generosity. Wonderful, Margaret. In fact, there's a little frame picture on my desk of Margaret and me. Um, For our listeners, I think we should leave them to a link to educate them about this extraordinary woman, which I will do. And she deserves it. Uh, Extraordinary indeed. Extraordinary collector, she and her late husband, Eugene McDermott. I think people will always love painting. I don't think that's going to disappear. We, We had crises about the fate of painting back in the 19th century with the advent of photography. I don't think it's going to go away. And though I didn't go to the Armory Art Fair a week or two ago, everyone told me it was all about painting. I think that within museums, there's a shift. You know, if museums 
or curatorial departments consist of fiefdoms, the power has definitely shifted. There's so much vitality in other media, other modes of expression. You know, I, I just think that there's always a an interest in the in something new and people will gravitate towards that. I mean, thinking back to my initiation uh, to museum work at the Guggenheim, I was there to do research on the Peggy Guggenheim collection. So for me, that was kind of my sweet spot. But I was also working for Linda Shearer, who was producing the first Joseph Boyce exhibit in the United States. And that idea of art as social practice. I've been thinking about that project a lot recently. And, you know, that's that's a long time ago. Those strands of uh, social practice, of new media, they've been with us for a long while. And isn't that wonderful? Because it's such a rich, multivaried, creative world in which we work. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. You and I also have an affection for objects, mm-hmm. and in my case, going back to antiquities mm-hmm. as well. I think a younger audience is looking not necessarily for permanent collection galleries, like the just opened in Houston. What an incredible commitment Houston made to its Museum mm-hmm. of Fine Arts. But that model of the permanent collection displayed and waiting, waiting for you, is different from the model of a younger visitor who wants you to do something for them. Mm-hmm. What are you doing for me? Isn't that true? Well, you used the word experience earlier, and I do think that the craving for rich and varied and quickly changing experiential scenes within a museum is really paramount. I I think that also offers opportunities, maybe that split between the permanent collection galleries that, you know, you have to go and dust them off, They rarely change. You know, you get a new curator and they come and move things around. And then there are temporary exhibits every three or six months. Maybe that will happily be much more fluid. And in fact, I've enjoyed here at the Phillips, so, you know, much smaller collection than many museums in which I've worked. But it was never about a static permanent collection and temporary exhibits. Yes, we have temporary exhibits, but Duncan Phillips always talked about move things around. He loved conversations between pictures, between pictures and people. Actually, I've I've enjoyed so much that the founding, you know, the Genesis story of the Phillips collection is very forward thinking, open to change and remaining robust. But that's something that we've really embraced here one of our star curators, Vesla Stratenovich, has for over 10 years now done intersections projects where it's with the building, with the collection, with spaces. And I think that people find that very thought-provoking, dynamic. It's refreshing. Directors who move on often speak about thought-provoking things they haven't been able to do (laughs) and projects they've long deferred. Is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to tackling a year from now? Well, you know, I have to admit I have a, you know, some files or filing cabinets filled with projects long deferred, things that go back to 
my work on the Douglas Cooper collection or many, many, many lectures. And I think some of my best thinking that few people know about because they were never published. But those, frankly, feel less exciting right now. Um, They feel more like almost housekeeping, things I want to take care of. But, you know, I've had the pleasure of serving on the National Council for the Humanities, and I serve on two foundations. So the perspective of grant making, of policy, I find really very enticing. And I really am thinking slowly more in that direction because, you know, all of the big questions that you have so provocatively, you know, lobbed out during during our conversation are really, really intriguing. And hopefully those of us who have spent many decades in the field have something to offer, a perspective, some longer vision of change and trends, or maybe when we are not in service to a particular institution, perhaps the ability to articulate ideas with some audacity. Yes. Oh, I'm all for that. I'm ready for your audacity to continue. It's never gone anywhere, but it's going to be unhinged a year from now, and we all can't wait. Dorothy, thank you for making time for us today. I really appreciate hearing from you, and I know there's much more to come in your career. So thank you so much for participating. I enjoyed this discussion so very much. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Dr. Dorothy Kaczynski, the Vredenberg Director and CEO of the Phillips Collection. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.